Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Pat Sharp and the Funhouse Twins. Use your body and your brain if you want to win the game. Funhouse is a real wacky show. Anything can go. They're trying to bring it back. Did you see them on Great Morning Britain? Pat Sharp, go-karts, everything, the twins. They're trying to bring it back. Bring it back. Come on, we want to see Funhouse back on our TVs. And Dream Team. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. And it's an even bigger welcome today, because today is Alive and Kickin's 50th episode. Yes, we've reached 50 episodes of the podcast. Great milestone. Very proud Thank you to everyone who's been involved. Thank you for listening to the show, if you've done it at any point, or if this is your first time. Where have you been? You've got 49 episodes to listen to. We've reached a milestone here on Alive and Kicking. I'm so over the moon about it. And it was one that kind of, it snuck up on me, actually, to be honest. I knew we were getting near it and we were in the 40s and blah, blah, blah. But because I got quite caught up in doing the season by season countdown that we've been doing here on Alive and Kicking, which we'll resume next time out when we do 96, 97, I didn't realise that 50 was quite as close as it was. And it was, in fact, a friend of the show, Joel Young, grandfather clock of AK90s, who dropped me a text and said, have you got anything planned for the 50th episode? And at that point, I really didn't. Um, I didn't know what to do. I had my mind sort of ticking over what could make it different, make it special, make it stand out against the, the rest of the shows that we've done. And then something happened on Twitter. It was one of those moments that where stars aligned, coincidence, what, call it fate, whatever you like, but it led to what is the bulk of today's show. And a, a big thank you has to go out, firstly to Joe, and we'll get to that in a minute, but also to a big supporter of the show, a big supporter of the other show that I do uh, called Gorilla Position, which is a WWE show. It's a podcast and it's on TalkSport 2 Wednesday nights at 11pm if you're a WWE fan and you want to check that out. But a friend of mine, Mick Conlon, tweeted at AK90s. He tweeted his, a, the tournament team that we did a few episodes ago where we each picked our best 11 from the tournaments of the 90s. And I asked you guys to do the same. Mick did that, tweeted a picture of his 11 at our feed, including me in the handle and also the handle of his centre-back that he had in his team. A certain American footballer who I had in my team as well. So if you listen to the show, you know where this is going. Mr. Alexi Lalas was in his team and he uh, included him in the tweet. And bless Alexi's cotton socks, he replied to Mick and, and the show and said, oh, thanks, mate. You know, what a team that was, which led to Mr. Social Media worming his way in brilliantly like he does. The genius that is Joel Young and asking Alexi outright. Would he ever consider coming on the show? It's something that I've mentioned many times, how much I'd love to get Alexi on the show, as my love for USA 94, of course, as I said, on many, many occasions. It's one of my favourite, well, it's my favourite tournament. And Alexi actually replied, and after a few follows and a few DMs here and there, we agreed, we recorded a massive interview, me and Alexi, and that's what is today's bulk of the show. Our special 50th episode is me going one-on-one with Alexi Lalas, and I don't think that could be pretty much more perfect. I mean, this guy was an icon of the era, and we ask him everything you probably want to ask Alexi as well in this interview. We talk about his beginnings and how hard it was to get into football in America during the early 90s, his rise through the US national team, of course, 1994 World Cup, and of course, 
that kit. We go in great detail, but also his time in Italy, his opportunity to come to England, his appearance on uh, Fantasy Football League, Phoenix from the Fames, which is really, really funny. A load, load more. It's a great interview. I know interviews on here, we usually do sort of 10 minutes with somebody either side of, of the theme we're doing, but I thought as it's Alexi Lalas, someone with so big name and it's our 50th episode, I thought I'd do a proper full length interview uh, with the man. And it's over Skype, so the, the quality is much better than some of the phone calls that we've had here and there. So yeah, that is the bulk of today's show. So thank you very much to Mick Conlon for inadvertently setting that up. And then Joel as well for his massive hand in getting Alexi on the show. That interview is to come in just a bit. Um, I can't wait for it. It's absolutely brilliant. I really, really enjoyed talking to Alexi. He's such a nice bloke and such a legend of 90s football. Perfect for our 50th episode here. So yeah, that's to come. Uh, Before we get to that, a few 90s nibs, as I like to call them on the intros before we get into the meat of the show. Um, Firstly, kits. Obviously, I love talking kits. Um, There's a couple of more 90s homages coming out. I love it. It seems to be we're in a very poignant summer where companies are really looking to the 90s for inspiration on their kits which I love because it's the best decade for kits anyways and in particular Umbro have gone I don't know if you've seen it this week uh, with a new Blackburn Rovers away kit which is a homage to the I think it's the title winning season actually the 94-95 kit the black kit with the red uh, red pinstripe sorry um, they've done kind of a modern twist on that and it's a really nice quick kit it includes the umbro taping on the shoulders as well really like that so hat tip to umbro for that also wick and wanderers cool they deserve a round of applause this one came out of nowhere really really just what the hell was that their new goalkeeping kit is if you imagine going back to the 94 world cup again George Campos, you know, massive name of that World Cup, the Mexican goalkeeper who also played up front at some times. He designed his own goalkeeping kits. They were loud, they were Larry, they were massive. And Wickham have kind of done a modern twist on that. It's not quite as big and baggy as the 1990 football kits, but it's bloody loud, let me tell you that. I love it. It's like yellow and then it's got like paint of pink and blue. It's completely bonkers, completely belongs in those goalkeeping kits of the 90s. I think I saw a tweet yesterday that's the highest selling item on the uh, Wickham Wanderers Club Shop website as well. So it's obviously popular. I'm going to get myself one to add to my kit collection. Thank you very much to Joel Young, as usual, who pointed it out. Also CJ Styles and Martin Chu on Twitter, who also pointed it out for me. I had seen it even before that, because I think Simon Peach, who's been on the show before, was the first person to tweet it out. But it's absolutely amazing. So well done to uh, Wickham Wanderers for that amazing kit. And to, as I said, to the new Blackburn Away kit. Talking of tweets as well, I had so many tweets about this. I don't know if you saw it. Apparently, some sort of Twitter feed or a magazine in Italy found this clip of a game between Queen's Park Rangers, my team, of course, and Manchester City from the 1992-93 season. It's hilarious. It's a passage of play where everything you could probably go wrong for both teams, they're both to blame, in a matter of kind of 30 seconds to a minute does. There's misplaced passes, there's terrible misses, there's uh, stupid fouls, there's everything that was, maybe it should be set to a Benny Hill theme tune. It's the kind of thing, um, if you haven't followed crap 90s football, which is a great feed, which we're going to get the guys on the show from that at some point, we've been talking, but he also um, it's the sort of thing that's on there, and I think he also tweeted at me and he said he was to blame but that clip has gone pretty much viral and there's so many people Chris Nichols uh, Liam at uh, Liam at SEFC Andy Lindsley Rocco619 all tweeted me about this clip because obviously it involves QPR it involves 90s football so thank you very much it's the QPR I know and love 
That's what I keep saying. That's the only reply I can have. Yes, it's silly. Yes, it's unfathomable. But that's kind of what happened. But let's be honest. That season, QPR came fifth in the league. So we might have had the worst bit of football ever or whatever the Italian football magazine called it. But we still managed to come out fifth in the league, top London club that season. But if you haven't seen it, you'll find it easily on Twitter because this week it's been everywhere. So it's a clip between QPR and Man City. I think Crap 90s Football ran it away days as well as another account I saw it on. But you'll find it on Twitter as well. Uh, my last Twitter note as well, and a little mini apology. Big supporter of the show. Somebody's always talking 90s football with us. MCFC shirt on Twitter. Um, they kind of, not complained. I won't call it a complaint, mate, but you pointed out that we failed to mention in our last show when we're talking about 95, 96, the genius of Georgie Kinkladze. Apologise, we should have mentioned him. We did a lot on the title race. Um, wasn't really a lot of time to talk anything else, but of course, massive part of that season, massive player of the 90s actually. We'll talk very much more about him. You know what? We'll get you on the show, MCFC shirt, because if there's anyone who should talk about Georgie Kinkladze, it should be someone who saw him firsthand. So I'll get in touch with you again and we'll sort that out and we'll talk all things Georgie Kinkladze. Uh, my last little 90 nib was I was really lucky enough this week to go to the Soccer Sixes. No, Star Sixes. I keep calling it Soccer Sixes because it was that tournament that used to be around in the summer. But Star Sixes, of course, it's called. I don't know if you've seen it on Sky Sports over the weekend. Uh, it's, it's a massive tournament. It's got loads of legends. It's a bit like the Masters that they used to do in the summer, which was great. But this is more of an international flavour. And the names they've got, absolutely fantastic. I went on the opening night on Thursday. Um, had some very nice press tickets thanks to the guys at Pitch uh, PR. They were very kind to us and got to see all the games. And I don't know if you saw on my Twitter feed, we got to meet some of the players as well afterwards. Um, wasn't enough. I was trying to get some interviews, but they were pretty much thrown through the mix zone. You kind of got a hello, maybe a quick um, picture, maybe a quick one question. Wasn't really time to do a full interview uh, for any of them, unless you were Sky Sports or or somebody from TalkSport. They, they obviously were promoting the show and showing the show, so they got a lot of the time. But I did manage to meet, I don't know if you saw on our Twitter feed, the likes of Roberto Carlos, Fabrizio Ravanelli, Emil Heskey, Michael Owen, Paolo Di Canio, and for me, and I know someone else who's very close to our hearts, Mr. Joel Young again. Cool, you're getting a lot of attention this episode. I got to meet, shake the hand and have a small little chat with Jim Nino, which is really special to me because he's one of my favourite players of the 1990s. Always plays with a smile on his face. Scored a cracking goal as well in Brazil's game uh, against, who did they play at the end? Italy, of course. Um, he scored the opening goal in that game and it was a cracker of a goal. One of the best goals of the night as well. But it's a great tournament. If you haven't caught it already, it's on all over the weekend. It depends when you're listening to this, but I'm sure you'll be able to catch it on Sky Sports at some point. Um, but really, really enjoyable. Great idea. I hope they do it next year as well um, just the names I mean Rivaldo was in the Brazil squad as well Borghetti from Mexico France had kind of Desailly and William Gallas and Djokaev and the Italian team as I mentioned they had um, Del Vecchio and De Canio and Alessandro Del Piero there were some absolutely humongous names there well done to everyone who was involved really great thing to do in the summer and really enjoyed myself but that's get on with today's show the 50th episode of Alive and Kicking it's very special it's, it could only be one man. I'm sorry. I'll, okay, maybe you can have your Gascoins, you can have your Ian Wrights, you can have your whoever else, David Beckham, Michael Owen in the 1990s, but somebody who was a pure icon, especially of the 1994 World Cup and beyond, someone who screams 1990s football. Here he is talking to me. We go one-on-one with former US captain, US star of 1994, and a dab hand with a guitar as well. Here is me talking to Alexi Lalas on Alive and Kickin's 50th episode. 
Okay, joining me on the line now, it's absolute pleasure to speak to this guy, a icon, a symbol of the 1990s, I would say, someone who was so heavily featured in the 1994 World Cup and one of the faces of the tournament, Mr. Alexi Lalas. Welcome to Alive and Kicking. Wow, that's a, that's a hell of an introduction. Long live <laughs> the 90s, long live uh, crazy hair and faux denim and all the other things on and off the field. <laughs> oh, we'll talk faux denim, don't you worry. That's definitely coming up. One, uh, as I call it, the, my favourite kit of all time. But we will get to that, absolutely get to that. Um, before we do start talking 90s, I just wanted to talk a bit about uh, your background as well. I mean, obviously, especially at the time in America, it's it's not the most common sport to get into. How, what, mm-hmm. drew, what drew you to football, soccer? Well, I'll try and use the word soccer as much as possible. Um to, to, in your early days growing up in college and stuff, what was it about uh, the, the soccer stuff that really drew you in? Yeah, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, and I grew up doing what a lot of my generation in the, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s in the United States did when it came to soccer, which was, you know, youth soccer and mom and dad coaching and orange peels and juice boxes at <laughs> halftime and travel teams and all this kind of stuff. But it was all within this. Um, you know, underground niche type of environment, which is what soccer was back then. And it's not that we didn't have uh, a national team or that we didn't have uh, professional soccer, but it was a real Wild West type of existence. And I grew up being a player of soccer, but a fan of hockey. And my, my wall was papered with hockey players and musicians and I didn't grow up watching a lot of soccer the first World Cup I ever saw was 86 uh, the finals from 86 Mm -hmm. in Mexico Uh, I didn't grow up going to professional soccer games uh, except for maybe a couple the Detroit Express Trevor Francis who your listeners may know came over and played uh, in the league back then but it was it was always it was always very foreign, and it was just something that I loved to do, and something that I did when it wasn't freezing cold and snow outside, which is for two weeks in in Michigan is basically when it happens. But it was not with an aim to be um, a, a professional soccer player. Didn't mean I didn't take it seriously, and I didn't want to win. But it was just I was a I was a product of. Uh, a very young and naive type of environment when it came to soccer but since then obviously it's blossomed and I like to think that it it was you know I played a very small little part in that so it's been it's been a wonderful ride on and off the field since then. What was it like for somebody getting into soccer at that time because obviously the MLS we, we were kind of in that sort of middle period where there wasn't really a league um, yep. until, until the mid-90s and obviously after the, after the World Cup. So once you discovered that this is what you wanted to do, I mean, in the early 90s, how did it, what was it like for a player and then playing for clubs and for university and things like that? It was really difficult uh, if you wanted to make a living out of it. You, usually the path and the path that I took and most of my, my colleagues at that point took um, was through the college system and then either playing in you know the many indoor soccer leagues or the Wild West that was the outdoor soccer leagues, like you said before, MLS started in 1996, and, uh, or going overseas and, and testing yourself. And uh, look, it's, it's changed a lot in terms of the perception of the American player, but, but back then it was, it, it, was, it was difficult. It was difficult just to get a trial, let alone to hook up with a team over there. Uh, and then you're coming in as American. This is obviously before Bosman and the, and the European Union opened up and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was slim pickings. Uh, the, the, the way that I got in was I was picked for the national team to play 
in the Olympics in 92 in Barcelona, at which point the national team, uh, I was on their radar, and I transitioned right into the full national team, which is where we, we find that, that moment that basically changed my life and the reason why I'm talking to you, which is the summer of 1994. But two years leading up to that summer, we were training full-time as a national team in Southern California, which is why when you look at my generation, we all have so many caps because all we did was play international soccer. And by the time I got to that summer of 1994, my experience consisted of uh, playing uh, un at university for four years, uh, playing with the uh, under-23 national team in terms of the Olympics in 1992, and then two years of traveling around the world playing international soccer so that when I stepped on that field, in 1994, uh, I had never been on the books of a club. Uh, so I really did it backwards. Usually you do well at a club, and then they see you, and then you get the national mm -hmm. team, and then you play in a World Cup. But myself and guys like Kobe Jones, we had never been on club teams. Our, all of our experience was international. So it was a little bit, it was, once again, it was just dependent and, and uh, uh, um, a, a reflection of where we were as a soccer nation. Mm. Is it true you had a trial with Arsenal? I read that somewhere. Is, yeah. that, is that true? Yes. That, what happened yeah, so then? That would have been, uh, okay, so uh, let's see. So the Olympics in 92 were done that summer, and I came back to the United States, and as I said, you kind of look, what, you know, what, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? Am I going to try play indoor? You know, I had indoor teams that wanted me, and or, or am I going to go back overseas and try to figure something out? And um, I was able to, uh, to get a trial in December of 92, it would have been, at uh, uh, at Arsenal, uh, I'll never forget it. It was it was an incredible experience. But I was certainly a no name, and um, I, I I had no resume other than the uh, the '92. Um, Bob McNabb actually uh, was the guy who was living in Southern California, and he was able to set up this trial for me, which was I'll forever be uh, grateful for that just that experience. But I did. Mm. I spent Christmas Day of 1992 in a hotel room alone. Um, just going back and forth to what is it, uh, London Colney or whatever it is yeah. they, where they used to train, and it, it is full circle because as I sit here today, tomorrow morning I'm going to the studio where I work at Fox here uh, in the United States, and uh, one of the guests we have doing punditry this summer with us for the Confederations Cup is Ian Wright, a guy who many many years ago actually was part of a group between Ian Wright, uh, Tony Adams, and uh, Paul Merson that picked me up to take me to training uh, from the from the uh, the hotel and uh, and now we're back together working again so our, our lives have, have changed a lot since then but it's funny how the world works did they uh, induct you in the drinking culture at the time down at down at Highbury at the early 90s did you get any of that no no I didn't I, I stayed away from that I mean I, look I, I didn't have a job they had the uh, they had yeah. the paycheck coming so I mean it didn't work out but you know one door closes another one opens and immediately I went right from that trial to the national team, which is, like I said, where I stayed for the next almost two years, training day in and day out with the national team, getting ready for the 94 World Cup. Mm. You mentioned the build-up, obviously, to the 94 World Cup. I think you first came to people's attention in the UK in 1993 when England came over and you, fam uh, and you famously beat them. You famously scored. What are your memories of that game and beating Graham Taylor's England? It changed everything for me because it was the moment when I started getting much more playing time. Uh, Bora Milutinovic, our coach and a, and a coaching le uh, legend in terms of the international game, um, he, he taught me so much. And, and I came right at the perfect time in my development for a guy like him because he breaks you down and he makes you think about the game in different ways. But he also gives you confidence. And there were a lot of people that didn't understand why he would even have me as part of the possibility of being on the 23, let alone starting. And he threw me into that game and set pieces were always a, an important part of his plan and an important part of 
you know, the, the qualities and the skills that I brought. And so I knew that there were opportunities when corner kicks came up and Tab Ramos uh, hit, hit a corner in and, and up I go and... Uh, who would have been in goal? Uh, Flowers, maybe, or something like that. I think it was like Chris that. Woods. I think it was Chris Woods. Chris Woods, there you go, there you go. So uh, it's it skimmed off the side of my head, and, and from that moment on, I got more starting uh, opportunities and more playing time, and, and I never looked back. And I remember the the power, like you said, because, you know, that was, the it wasn't the start, but it was part of the demise of, uh, of, um, of the coach, and I remember the tabloids, and I remember oh, yeah. everything just going crazy about it because it was England and how important it was to us to be able to beat England because now we're emerging out of that uh, Neanderthal type of stage and, and or that you know that underground at the very least niche type of soccer culture and we're starting to uh, to do some things and though all of those things led up to the World Cup in 94 and then obviously the uh, the arrival of MLS in 96. Mm. Some of the questions we really had a lot about was interesting. You recreated that goal on a sketch for a TV show in this country, Fantasy Football League, um, which I've watched as well. Very funny. You, did, you played harmonica and things like that. How, <laughs> how, how did that come about? And what do you remember about Frank Skinner and David Baddiel? Because it was such a massive show uh, here in the UK. I had no idea who they were. Um, <laughs> they got in touch with our PR guys. I was in Italy at the time because after the 94 World mm-hmm. Cup, all sorts of doors opened up for me. And uh, I had opportunities in, in England to play for Coventry, uh, in Germany to play for Bochum, and then in Italy, uh, in Serie A, to go to a, a team called Padova, which had just come up to Serie A. Now, this was back, once again, before that migration had happened to the EPL, and, and Serie A was everything. It was the most money, it was the most prestige, and there was, there, I mean, there was no question as to what I was going to to do and, and have that opportunity, but um, there was still this curiosity of, of, of who this person was and this player and obviously the look and, and all that kind of stuff factored into it, and uh, so these guys came over and, and they got in touch with our PR guys and said, hey, we got a, this show and we'd like to come visit you, and we had a, we had a really good time, and you know, I, I had a good time just hanging out and doing whatever, and I didn't get a lot of the jokes because obviously <laughs> I wasn't watching it, so, which probably made it that much better. <laughs> So, uh, you know, they had me singing and they had me recreating things and, you know, wearing masks and doing all sorts of different things. It was fun. It was a, it was a good time. And I, I loved it because, you know, I was knee deep in that Italian culture. And to have somebody come over from, from England and, and, the, uh, and the language, I mean, the only real English speakers that were there at that time were what it would have been Gascoigne at one point um, and uh, oh, who, David? Uh, David Platt. Yeah, he was there. Yeah. So... You know, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of guys. I remember, so I remember being excited to be able to to speak English to someone. Uh, although my version of English might be very different, in terms of maybe maybe uh, something that people don't uh, believe is actual English. But it, it was fun. I had a really good time doing Some it. Some might say that about Frank Skinner as well, because he's from the middle of the country, which sometimes their English is quite hard to understand as well. No, no thanks <laughs> to the people of Birmingham. We love them. Um, Let's talk about the World Cup then, because as people who listen to this uh, a lot will know how much I love the tournament, love everything about USA 94. I mean, USA were awarded the World Cup in 1988, so it was quite a a long build-up. When did the fever start for you and the country, knowing that USA 94 was going to host the World Cup? (laughs) Well, it started for us personally when, when the announcement came, because now there is this moment that we can use, this touchstone, to hopefully change the perception of the game and and give it an injection that it needs. 
having said that, I, and I tell this story because I think it illustrates where America was at that moment when it came to soccer. Two weeks before the 94 World Cup kicked off and I would step on the field in front of a billion people uh, and it would change my life, I got on a plane. We were flying wherever we were as a team and uh, we were in economy and I was in a middle seat, which is how the national, the U.S. national team traveled in those days and I sat down next to a, uh, uh, an, an older woman and uh, we proceeded to strike up a conversation and she turned to me and she said, now, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I play soccer. And she says, oh, that's so nice. She said, now, wh what's your job? I said, well, I play soccer. And she said, well, now, what do you do for a living? How do you make money? I said, well, ma'am, I, I, I play soccer. And she could not fathom that this was uh, even a possibility in 1994 uh, United States. And I only use that to illustrate that this was an eye-opening experience for a lot of people when the World Cup came. Um, we invited the world to the United States, but really for us, it was a platform to change and to, and, and to win hearts and minds within our own country. And I think a lot of people, there's a whole generation now that looks back at that moment as to when things really, really changed for them. Whether they were really, really young uh, or middle-aged or even older, they recognize that that was a seminal moment in terms of the development of soccer on and off the field when it comes to the United States. And, and of course, you became one of the sort of most iconic images of that tournament with the, with the the ginger hair and the beard. I mean, mm -hmm. was that look a conscious decision knowing that it was coming, or was it just this is me and this is this is what I look like? Uh, it was manufactured, and I use that word, and, and people sometimes cringe uh, just because something is is manufactured, uh, or just because something is. I've always considered myself a performer and an entertainer, um, and I and I don't apologize for that. And some people think that you you can't be authentic or genuine or honest when you say that and that's not the case at all in that this was something that i cultivated that i knew would have an effect um and it comes from my my musical background and mm. and the the whole aesthetic and um the the costume part and the theater and the drama that i believe applies to whether it's music or whether it's theater or whether it's film or whether it's whether it's sports we we practice something which is another word for rehearsing and then we take it in front of people and we hope to elicit a reaction and everything matters uh how you say things is as important as what you say your costume matters and i knew that this was something that first and foremost i felt comfortable with yeah but also uh, could resonate and the, and I based it on the people that I liked to watch in entertainment whether they were singers or musicians or uh, you know actors or, or or athletes I liked big bold personality I loved I love a beautiful arrogance I love people that make me think on and off the uh, whether doing things on and off the field and I was trying to to do some of that so um, so I knew I knew I knew what I was doing it was very comfortable for me and I milked it for all it was worth on and off the field and had a blast doing it. <laughs> that actually leads nicely to what I was going to ask you, because you were highlighted because of that look and, and the musical side, which we'll get onto in a bit. Did you, so did you enjoy the attention that you got? Because I always remember the, the upper deck trading card that I've mentioned before as well. Had you rocking out with a guitar and your glasses. Sure. And there's so many photo shoots we've seen from around the time where you embraced that. Did you enjoy all the attention? Love it. I love it. Look, uh, none of us ever got anywhere without a good, healthy ego. I mean, we're all a bunch of egotistical narcissists <laughs> anyway when it really comes down to it. Um, I enjoyed the attention, but I always was was reminding myself, and I surrounded myself with people that would remind me that, number one, you, my you-know-what doesn't stink. Uh, don't, don't, don't think that, mm -hmm. okay? It does. It stinks just like everybody else. Uh, number two... 
if uh, you know that that old adage of of making sure that uh, it's not all style; it has to be substance behind it, and the ability to do the job when that whistle blew uh, would determine how credible you are going to be. And so I, I made sure that I, I needed to perform on the field, and I never let any of that get in the way. At least I tried not to. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that at times I didn't go crazy because I did. But I had, to, I had to make sure that I had that balance and that proper balance or else it wouldn't work or else you just look like a clown. And I know there's some people out there that, 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 that still would, would say it was contrived or that I was a clown in the way that I went about it. But you know what? Uh, I had a good time doing it. It was fun. It was fun playing that part, playing that character. There was so much of me in it and so it was easy to do, um, and ultimately the whistle blew, and uh, hopefully each and every time I gave people something to be interested in and something to uh, entertain them. You did, and you know what, fun sums up that World Cup for me as well, that's what I like, it's such a colourful tournament, and, and yeah. you were very much part of that. I mean, what expectations did USA as a team going into it? What what did you did it was it getting out of the group what yeah, as a football yeah. was it, that was it yeah so you know it was a it was a weird thing because for the first time a a country that was not a perennial type of power was hosting the world cup um but obviously from a from a a, a, a power standpoint as a country this was the united states mm. and so there was pressure internally uh and there was a curiosity externally as to uh, what this was going to be as a tournament. From a, from a competitive standpoint, our goal was to get out of the group. We considered that a success. It's always been kind of the benchmark for a host nation and, and yeah. since has been, you know, when it comes to South Africa and those types of teams, getting out of the group. Once you've done that, then the rest is kind of gravy. And then to have the opportunity to play the, the, the eventual winners in Brazil on July 4th in Stanford and do all that, uh, sure, you can look back and say, I wish it would go on that, or if we had not let in a goal in that third game, then maybe we're playing a different team in that round of 16. But, you know, ultimately, when we got done with that tournament, I think all of us collectively looked around and said, you know what, we've done something where we've lived up to our goals, but we've also done something that's going to help the game. And the game did change after that. And it still remains the most successful when it comes to the, uh, the business of it, of any World Cup in history. And when it comes back in 2026, uh, it will be a, a juggernaut, the likes of which we've never seen. But also, more importantly, it changed the, the, the soccer culture and the way that we think uh, about the game. And it, without it, you don't have the success of Major League Soccer and the, and the soccer-specific stadiums and all the different stuff that we talk about nowadays when it comes to uh, the American soccer market. And you know, from, from an English standpoint, you look at all these teams, and I, I will call them brand, brands. I know that's sacrilege, <laughs> but they are brands. When they come over to the ATM that is the United States, there's a reason why they're coming over. It's because... Yeah of this market that exists. And to them, it's an untapped market. And for them, it's a branding experience to get that brand out there and win hearts and minds over there. So all of that changed in terms of, uh, in, in terms of 1994. And you, you got to take a little pride in that. And I think we all do. Yeah, you did. You, you mentioned you all, what you said, that squad. I mean, it had some great names of the era. You look at John Harkes and Tab Ramos, yep. Eric Wanonda, Kobe Jones. And they're all names that went on and did things. It was a really collective group of very good footballers, really, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and, and a bunch of characters. Oh, my God, what a <laughs> bunch of nuts we were. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because if you go down the line of the players that were involved in that, almost every single player is still involved in the game in some way, and, and almost every single one is involved in the U.S. game uh, in some way because 
I, I think there's an ownership of that summer and of the sport that came from that summer and, and, a, and a willingness and a need to be involved in one way. And whether it's coaching or technical directors uh, or like myself in, in, uh, in television, all the different ways to be involved. There's guys that are, that are in front offices and they've all they come out of that moment in 1994. And there's a whole generation that grew up and now is professional players or involved in the game that grew up watching that 1994 experience. And, and that's part of their palette right now which is which is kind of cool i'm i'm an old guy now when i when i talk to some of these guys and i joined the club once like yeah i know when i explained to them what it was like and and uh, i don't expect them to be appreciative uh, or or for that matter even care about what happened back then because in my mind the fact that maybe some of them don't even remember or don't know um, and know a completely different world than back in 1994. That's that's a good thing. That's progress to me. Yeah, well, it makes us feel old. But what a tournament! Yeah, one, one player. That I, this is a personal question for me personally. If I, if I knew that you were being interviewed, I'd ask this question to anyone because one of the players in that squad was Roy Wegley. Now I'm a QPR fan myself. Um, he's a big hero of mine. So, what are your memories of Roy uh, as a footballer and, and as, a, as a man? Great golfer. Um, Almost turned, well, he turned pro, didn't he? Tried to. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was an incredible golfer. Uh, also, the the most chill dude I've ever <laughs> met. Um, nothing faced this guy, on or off the field. And, look, you spend a lot of time with people. You, you get on each other's nerves. You go through good and bad. And you go through drama on and off the field and all that kind of stuff. And yet, for him, he always seemed to be not not above it all but just not affected in the way that normal human beings are and i I look at that as i I, i'm I'm jealous of that yeah because i think what he was very very good at doing was separating out what's important and what's not important uh in life or in a life in soccer uh from a from a competitive standpoint when he came to the team this was a guy who could beat players one-on-one, yeah. who had a deceptive speed with the ball, one of those guys that was almost faster with the ball than without the ball. Uh, and so that gave us a different look. That gave us a, a, a different option up there. You talked about Eric Winaldo, who was one type of player. Uh, Roy Wigley was another type of player. Uh, Ernie Stewart, who was a, another type of player. So it just gave us options because of what what he knew and what he could do and that was that was important to us from an attacking standpoint mm. we can't talk usa 94 and i can't talk usa 94 without talking about the greatest kit of all time it's <laughs> it, uh, one is hanging literally next to me in my office because it's I, I bought it on ebay a few years ago i absolutely love the thing what was it like wearing that kit of the 90s the faux denim as it, as it was called it just it played into that whole act as you said didn't it Oh, uh, you're lucky if you have one because they are they are hard to get. I know. So I'll tell I you. Know. I'll, I'll tell you a story. So, um, so before the '94 World Cup, uh, our sponsor was Adidas, uh, as it as it uh, uh, had been for many many years. Uh, they they pulled us into a room, and a collection of the players from the team, the core of the team, including myself, were brought into this room in a hotel, and. Um, they, we were presented what our uniform was going to look like. None of us had any idea, including our coach, Bora Milutinovic. Now, this is an old ploy um, from uh, apparel companies where they will present it to you and with the understanding that nothing can be changed. So even if you don't like it, it doesn't really matter. This is mm-hmm. what's happening, but they, 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 they trick you into thinking that you are inclusive and you are part of the process, but that's not the case at all. So we get in there and this, this, you know, this jersey is, is shown to us. And for those of you listeners that may not know it, it, it was 
uh, a faux denim. So it looked like jean, uh, jean from afar, like blue jean uh, from afar. Uh, and then with red shorts and, and white socks, that was the, the iconic type of, of image. Uh, I will say that at that moment, we all kind of looked at each other and the fear crept in <laughs> that we are going to look um, like uh, we're going to perpetuate the ugly American myth. Uh, we are going to look like the clowns that many of the world possibly perceive us to be. Um, and then the realization, at least from my part, was, you know what? If we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's yeah. not half-ass it. And in that, in, in that moment, I came, I came to love it and to own it. And much more over the years, it's just gotten more and more. And now, like you said, it's become iconic. There are plenty of World Cup jerseys from the U.S. that nobody can name, that nobody remembers. But you remember that 1994 Fodenum one. Whether you played on the team or supported the team or not, even people that just watched the, the tournament, they remembered it. Uh, and so it was memorable, and it's become even more and more memorable and synonymous with that summer and with the U.S. team. And I like it because it, it, it represented all the best part of America. Big, bold, arrogant, at times tacky and gaudy <laughs> uh, and, and, and loud and brash. And if we were going to do it, we were going to do it. And when you walk on the field wearing that in 1994, and by the way, it was the 90s, so yeah, it wasn't exactly. completely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, if you look at some of the other stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Look at Jorge Campos or whoever. But but we walk on the, on the field in 1994 representing the United States in faux denim, uh, that's 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 about as American as it gets. The, the version I've got is very thick. Was it the same? Because you were playing in such heat in that World Cup. Yeah. Was yeah. it as thick I mean, as it? Back then, it wasn't just for us. Everybody. I mean, the thickness of the of the jerseys back then was something that was ridiculous. You, uh, it's so antiquated now when you look at the the micro sheens and all the different yeah. stuff that we have right now. But yeah, we were we were carrying around a lot of weight, especially when when those things got wet with sweat. I can imagine, yeah. Uh, lastly, on this, we'll talk, and we'll talk just a little bit before you go about Italy and, and your musical career. But what were your favourite memories overall of that tournament? Um, I, I, the the focus and the pinch me, I can't believe this is happening type of feel. For example, uh, a few years ago, I was talking to uh, some folks that were in the locker room before our U.S. Switzerland game, which, uh, for anybody that knows their history, was the first game yeah. in the World Cup. That was ever played indoors. It was the Pontiac Silverdome, 10 minutes outside, talk about full circle, 10 minutes outside of where I grew up in Detroit. Uh, we played against Switzerland, and it was uh, it's the first time the World Cup games had been played in, indoors because it had a roof. It was like a, uh, a hothouse. I mean, it was ridiculously hot. But somebody told me the other day, hey, you remember when Henry Kissinger was in the locker room? And I had had no recollection at all until he told me this. And then it all came flooding back because I was so focused on going out and being, realizing this dream of playing in a World Cup that's, that an iconic person like Henry Kissinger walking through our room and shaking our hand, which he absolutely did uh, because he was instrumental in getting the World Cup in 1994, I completely blanked that out. And it was just moments like that throughout yeah. the tournament. And, and, and obviously, the 100,000 people in the Rose Bowl and getting that win against Colombia, which a lot of people had picked as the favorite and, and for all intents and purposes going through and realizing that dream. And then obviously the Escobar situation uh, that unfolded over the next couple of weeks and how that has played into the, uh, the, 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 the narrative and the story of that game and of that tournament, uh, getting the, uh, to the Rose Bowl in, in July, uh, excuse me, to uh, Stanford in July 4th and playing 
Brazil and Tab Ramos getting hit in the head, mm. uh, and then all of the opportunities that, that came to me on and off the field and the doors that opened up after that, uh, and whether it's going on Letterman or, or Leno and these talk shows or... Um, or like I said, just the the offers to to play in different places and appearances and all that kind of stuff. It was it was heady times. It was it was it, it's it changed my life. Mm-hmm. I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual, and it it uh, it changed my life. Just quickly, I mean, it's it's a hard subject to mention. I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you have the Escobar sure. incident, I mean, yep. how did that affect you and and the team at the, at the time once what happened? It's one of the questions that I get mo- most often about yeah. the knife. Cup, and, and as it should be, it is it is a part of that story, um, and, a, and an incredibly sad part of that story. And I'll tell you what I tell everybody: um, if any one of us thought for one second that by losing that game against Colombia, uh, Andreas would still be around, take take it. We will yeah. we will gladly lose that game. Um, but having said that, it also is a game where the aftermath is part of it. But the actual game, it's okay for us to celebrate it because it was a wonderful moment. And it was the culmination of so much work to be able to beat a team like Colombia in the World Cup, get that three points, like I said, for all intents and purposes, get out of the group because of that result, and celebrate it as an incredible moment for the individual players that, and the team and the coaches, but also for soccer, and to separate it out from what happened later. And... I think sometimes when you do that, people say, yes, but, but what happened later? And, and so I try to separate the two. And then to, to find out what happened later on, and if it in any way had anything to do with what happened on the field, to just be devastated that, that there was that connection, if there, if there, if there was. And, um, and it is part of the story. And it is a, a, uh, a part of the story that should be told but it shouldn't take away necessarily from the incredible work and the and rightfully celebrating a moment in American soccer history when it comes to the result that was achieved by that team on that day. Mm-hmm. And it, it was achievement for you as well, because as you mentioned earlier, you went on to play for Italy, for Padova. Um, you scored mm-hmm. against AC Milan and Inter Milan while you were there. I mean, what was the, quickly tell us the experience of playing in, in Serie A at the time, because it was such a, in the 90s, it was the league to play in. Yeah, I mean, so as I said, I had no club experience at all. All my experience was international. Uh, I was afforded the luxury of coming from a World Cup, which gives you incredible amount of credibility and, and uh, a buffer, but not for long. And because you know my my teammates had seen me play in the World Cup, and then you got to earn your spot and you have to have to play. And I was playing in the best league in the world. Every single Sunday, I was marking the best players in the world. And so you know whether it was coming up against, uh, the, you know, the, the Baggios or the Ravinellis and the Viales uh, or the Rugulits or these types of players. Every team there had players that had played in World Cups that were big stars. And it was, it, I, 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 learned, I became a better soccer player, but I also became a better person for the experience in, in Italy. And I stayed there for a couple of years, but I always knew that I wanted to come back and and help Major League Soccer start in 96. And so I got that experience uh, and and it changed me uh, for the better on on the field as a soccer player and as I said, off the field as a person. But I wanted to bring that home and be part of the beginning of something special for my own country and my own league in Major League Soccer. And so a couple years later, I came back and 
uh, was there from the kickoff at the beginning of the 96 season. I've seen some quite amusing videos of yourself on Italian TV as well, doing, oh my God, doing some yeah. of the music. I mean, again, <laughs> is that something you just embraced and went with? Yeah, and it was something that was strange for, you know, because there was a template for soccer players and how to act and how to talk and what to do on and off the field and, and how to look and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was, needless to say, not quite part of that template and so there once again there was a curiosity and and i milked it and um it was wonderful for me as far as the brand that i was but also one of the reasons why i was signed was because of that and so for part of this little this you know this little city and this little club that had come into syria it, it, it was good and i had a blast and i and i went on shows and i played guitar and i went and i toured i recorded there i had a blast doing the music part uh you know we we stayed up in the first year uh instead of getting relegated which is what everybody said was going to happen to this little club so there was success there on the field i learned italian uh, and and the, the Italians are very forgiving, uh, and they just want you to try. And so mm -hmm. I, I remember conjugating verbs the first night that I was in preseason with the only other player that even remotely spoke any type of English. I remember conjugating verbs because I wanted to know what people were saying about me, and I wanted to be able to communicate. Mm -hmm. You mentioned music there. That's we can't talk to Alexi Lalas without talking about music. Um, <laughs> You've memorably toured with Hootie and the Blowfish, which is absolutely yeah. amazing. And you had your own band called the Gypsies. You had Woodland in 94, then your your solo album, 98, Ginger, and then obviously into the next decade as well. I mean, it's such a massive part of your life. I'm not, I'm, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up yet. I, some of the songs I really do like as well. My, my kind of thing, Alexi. So, I mean, it's such a big part of your life still, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, I was doing music before I started playing soccer, and I'm doing music after I played soccer. And, and look, I recognize that there is a long history of athletes and actors and, and people that don't come from music uh, doing vanity projects and doing all that. And I knew that just to be good, it had to be really good in order to uh, get by that skepticism. And rightly so, I, I completely understand that. This is something that I couldn't stop even if I wanted to. It's a passion. I know I'm not selling millions of records. I know I'm not, uh, I'm not you know, that, that I'm not uh, going to be uh, this this music this incredible musician out there but this is something that's near and dear to me something that i love to do i continue to write and to record and put out music it's straight pop rock it's nothing uh that uh, that's shattering the uh the the musical spectrum out there but i love to do it i love to perform i love to write and uh, and it's a part of my life and it's it's made me a better person. It's made me a better soccer player when I was a soccer player. Um, and it's something that I, I, I can't give up and I, and I want to do. And if anybody out there wants to go check it out, feel free. Um, anybody out there that has gotten uh, the music out there, thank you. Uh, you and my mom. Thank you, mom, if you're listening to. Uh, so it's fun. It's, it's, it's a great thing. And it's something that I love to do and something that I have as much passion um, as anything else that I've done in my life. And it's great. And you should mention, you, you said you're working with Mr. Ian Wright. He released a single in this country in his heyday in the 90s. And I, and I think he's quite, it's terrible, Alexi. I think he's oh quite Oh my ashamed. God, I didn't know that. I'm yeah, gonna, I'm it's gonna, called. No, the, I'm going to kill him tomorrow. It's, it's called be The beautiful. Right Stuff, I believe. The Right Stuff. And he wears a terrible hat in the video. Yeah, wind him up about it. I don't think he likes to mention oh, it too I'm much. i get him good. Oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> uh, what, one thing I want to ask you about the MLS is something that always makes me tickle is, is the penalties they had when the league started from the halfway line i mean how did that come about and and what were your opinions of it 
So when, when Major League Soccer started in 1996, there was the feeling that, that, look, this is a blank canvas. Obviously, we're playing the world's game, but we can do some things that other leagues wouldn't be able to do because of a longstanding tradition. And so there was a desire at the end of the game, rather than have uh, ties, draws, uh, as you would call them, uh, to have a shootout, but not your traditional penalty shootout, an actual 35-yard uh, type of uh, shootout where players dribble in, they have five seconds to either dribble around and put it in or shoot or do whatever they have to do, but put the ball, uh, the five seconds before it has to leave your foot uh, and, and go in the back of the net. Uh, this was um, something that actually had been done years ago in, uh, in the NASL at different times, but it, it only lasted for a few years. And what we came to find out was there are certain things that we can do to push the envelope. For example, MLS is uh, going to be one of the one of the leagues that is implementing VAR, video assistant yeah. referee, coming up here in a couple of weeks. One of the first leagues. I know there's uh, Australia and different places that have done it, but uh, they're implementing it too. And they they want to be um, advanced and evolved in terms of the things they're doing. This one was not necessarily advanced and involved, but the problem was that. We don't want to ever lose sight that we are still playing the game that the world plays. And we don't want to be playing a different version of it. And I think for a lot of people, it was, it was too gimmicky, it was too circusy, and it took that feeling. You know, one of the great things about our game is that there's a kid in England that's playing the same ga game that a kid in Detroit's playing, that's playing the same game that a kid in Quito is playing. You know, and, and that's important. That's the thread that binds us in this beautiful game that we all know and love. We might have different interpretations of it. We might look at it differently. We might even present it differently in, in, in different contexts. But, but ultimately, it's still at its, at its core the same game. And you don't want to change that too much. And so, look, this, is, this was a trial and error type of thing. So they got rid of that. Uh, and now they just, like, like the rest of the world, if it is a tie, it's a tie. Mm -hmm. Well, let's finish then on something we always asked players of this era and you've got a vast array you mentioned names already who is the best player you played with and who is the best pl you played against in in that era of the 90s so i was uh a big uh player that relied much more on my physical ability my aerial ability so inevitably whenever i was faced with small quick guys guys with low center of gravity that's where i struggled so if i was marking a, a viali or a ravinelli you know or a batistuta that kind of stuff i could handle uh, because that was just a knock, knockout, dragout type of physical battle, and they weren't going to beat me on speed. Uh, but if I'm if I'm marking somebody like a Zola or a Romario, that's where I struggled. Because I'll never forget one of the first times I ever played Zola, and and he bit, uh, I bit. He went to the near post, and I bit to that near post run, and 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 he he just pulled off and went to the back post so quickly, and his his change of pace and speed. I mean. The guile, it, it's just incredible. So those are the types of players that I always had uh, problems with. Romario was just incredible in terms of his ability to come and get the ball and score in so many different ways, inside the foot, outside of the foot, half volleys, dribbling at people, uh, even in the air. I mean, so th these are the types of players that just caused me endless problems. It was the, it was the big, strong guys up top that I could, I could uh, you know, uh, go at every single day. That, that wouldn't be a problem. And, and with the, your, the best you played with? The best I ever played with was Tab Ramos. He was a man out of time. He was much too good for us. You may remember him from 1994. Yeah, did, yeah. Uh, got the elbow to the head. 
um, in uh, in the uh, round of sixteen games. Leonardo, against, wasn't uh, it? Yeah, Leonardo. Yes, yeah. he got suspended for six months, and and uh, it was horrible because. We, we, we lost a player that we really could have used, in, especially in that type of game. But he was a guy that, had he been born 20 years later, uh, he would be viewed in a, in a very different way. He was, he was too good for us. He was slumming it when he was playing with us. So uh, he's the best player that I ever played with. Well, we're going to finish it on uh, one of our questions from Twitter. I mean, uh, some of them I haven't mentioned your names. I'll, I'll mention them in the intro. But this one made me laugh. From Rabanas and Rhythms, they asked, who'd win in a fight, John Harks or Casey Keller? Oh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> Casey's armed to the teeth, uh, just uh, uh, just just so you know. Um, and so, if it's just a physical fight, <laughs> then I think John's wily. He's wily. You know, he's he, he'll, he'll bob and weave, and he'll tire you out, and you think you got him. But I think ultimately, eh, it's probably going to be Casey. Casey, you know, Casey will find a way. To, to to smash you. So there you go. There's your answer. Uh, Scott Tweed asked us, uh, did you have any, have any offers to come to England? Now you mentioned earlier Coventry. Was there any other? No, no nothing else. Uh, Coventry, like I said, there were the three offers after the 94 World Cup. Coventry, I remember, we, and I actually visited Coventry, um, and that, that's not what deterred me. So I know everyone has Coventry jokes and all that kind of stuff, but uh, it, they were very, very nice, and it would have been interesting, actually, because... We spoke earlier about that migration that happened when it came to the EPL. I, I always wondered how I would have fared had I started back then in 90, 1994 uh, in England and gone through the rest of the 90s playing in England with the with the style of play that I think is probably much more suited to the player that I that I was, and and maybe I would have had. Um, more success or longer success. I don't know. It, it would have been interesting to see how I would have continued uh, with that whole change of what the EPL is. I always think about that. And lastly, Ben Moxon wants to know how long you used to spend doing your hair before games. So uh, never has so much time, uh, energy, resource, resource, and money been spent to look like you just rolled out of bed. So <laughs> it was uh, don't 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 be fooled. Uh, the hot oil treatments and the scrunchies and the uh, the time spent grooming and making everything just right, whether it was my actual hair or the uh, the goatee that I had. Um, it was it was not minimal. It was lots of time, but you know these are the these are the details and these are the little things. Little things matter. Absolutely. And also, thank you to Matthew Braithwaite, Andrew Taylor, Matthew Chris, who asked us about fancy football as well. And thank you to Alexi Lalas. Absolutely fantastic memories. A real honour to speak to you, uh, beacon of USA '94. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on, and, and we will do it again uh, when it comes to a, a U.S. World Cup. Hopefully, twenty twenty six. As I said, it'll be bigger and better. I look forward to hosting you uh, when you come over. Then sounds good. It's a date. Alexi Lalas, ladies and gentlemen, how was that? Did you enjoy listening to that as much as I enjoyed speaking to the great man? Thank you very much to Mr. Lalas for taking time out of his busy, busy schedule for Fox Sports in America to talk to us. It was very much appreciated for this 50th episode and we got to talk to him for so long as well about so many subjects in the 1990s. It was an absolute pleasure. I do hope he does rib Ian Wright when he went back in the studio about uh, Ian Wright's single in the 90s. If you've never seen it, it's truly terrible. He wears a truly terrible hat in it. It's in some sort of disco come five-a-side pitch video. It's one of those pure 90s things, so I do hope he winds Ian up about it. But yes, thank you very much again to Alexi Lalas and to Mick Conlon and Joel Young for inadvertently setting that up in the process. It was brilliant for our 50th episode. So I do hope you enjoyed that. 
Uh, what I want to do before I get to my gushing thank yous on this 50th episode is I put a tweet out last week uh, about some Q&As that I thought I'd add to the end of this episode. We got a few replies. Thank you very much for doing that. Firstly, to Matthew Christ, who is a regular on this show. He's now our main United man of the 90s. He's done some great stuff on here and does some great articles on Football Whispers as well. And actually, he tweeted us at the weekend some great pictures that he found from his uh, parents' loft. He had this literally a great chest of 1990s goodies that he must have been keeping away from his childhood, which included the Man United away kit from 92 which is one of my favorite kits of the decade so if you ever want to get rid of that Matthew you know where I am I got a good home from it waiting in my classic kit collection there was other stuff in there lots of programs and Man United stuff including some programs from Lost of Road and a wall chart a USA 94 wall chart from Soccer Stars magazine there's a blast from the past I think we talked about that on our magazines pod last time out check that out in the archives but it was a great magazine and he asked me anything missing from your 90 CV that you have asked guests but not answered yourself I don't think I've actually ever done my own 90s CV on here. Not that I can remember. I think you could probably fill in the gaps from me anyway. Um, what I always ask first-time guests is their favourite player for their particular club. Uh, mine, I think I've said many, many times on this podcast, was Roy Wegerly for QPR. As a kid growing up in the 90s, he was just something different. You know, We lived in an era then when there was very few foreigners in the Premier League. I've always had the obsession with Americana, which is why I liked USA 94 as well. And I think that also began around that time. He was, although born in South Africa, he was an American footballer. The big long locks he had, number 10, which is always something that I loved. The number 10, I was a Gary Lineker fan. That was the first sort of number 10 I remember. And he was up front for QPR in the first real season that I remember for Rangers. And he had such superb skill. I mean, I think people forget how skillful he was. I think his best time was at Loftus Road. And some people remember the somewhat not not as good time that he had at Blackburn or Coventry. But for a couple of seasons at Loftus Road, he was amazing. There's that goal against Leeds that won the 1990 goal of the season. I think ITV's version of the goal of the season where he went round about six players at Ellen Road before slotting it home. Which, if it was scored by... Messi or somebody in this era or even in that era if it was scored by a scored by a better known player you'd see it replayed over and over again but you don't really get to see it but it was an absolute skill and I just loved him and I have ever since I have been in touch with him via email a couple of times to try and get him on the show and to do some other projects through QPR but he doesn't really want to talk about his football career which is such a shame it was good to talk to Alexi actually about Roy Wigley there you might have noticed as well so he would be my 90s QPR player outside of Loftus Road as I always say I think I'd have to go Gaza, just because when people ask me in the 90s, I say he is the 90s Paul Gascoigne. I've said many times that I want to do a show just on Paul Gascoigne. Hopefully we'll get to that at some point, just because he was there, wasn't he? Whatever was happening in the 1990s, Gaza was involved, you know, from 1990 in the World Cup in Italy, where he was everywhere. He was probably the best player on the planet at that time, going to the following season and the injury, then the move to Lazio, then Rangers, and then his exploits at Euro 96 and one of the goals of the decade against Scotland, and then 98 and that big row he had with Glenn Hoddle. Everything, there was so much going on, Paul Gascoigne, but when you watch him on the pitch, again, a player unlike... I've probably ever seen because he didn't have much pace about him but so much time on the ball ridiculous amount of time on the ball he had a great eye for goal great change of pace as well so I think Gaza would be I think it'd be Wegley and Gaza for me a special shout out to Davosuka who I used to love who came to fruition at Euro 96 great goal scorer Ronaldo as well another great goal scorer uh, who else would be on my list Dan obviously 
Um, Michael Owen towards the end of the decade really loved Michael Owen as well but yeah I think if I had to push comes to Janino how could I forget Janino loved Janino as well Steve Stone is a random choice I wouldn't say it was my favourite but you really used to rate Steve Stone as well but push comes to shove I'd probably say that Paul Gascoigne would be my 90s player I'm not going to go through the rest that hold the CV in detail but if I was going games I say my favourite QPR game would be the win at Old Trafford in 92 where we beat them 4-1 uh, with a special shout out to my first game though actually in the 92-93 season when we beat Everton 4-2 uh, Andy Sinton got a hat-trick and who scored the other goal oh no it's going to escape me no Stuart Barlow scored two for Everton um, can't remember who scored the other goal now but uh, Paul Roydow and Neville Southall was, was sent off so my first taste of Loftus Road was very very eventful so that would be a personal favourite game of my QPR non-QPR games I mean it's hard not to pick the obvious ones that we've done on this show so many times the 4-3 at Anfield obviously but I think if I came to it I think it have to be Euro 96 games just because I love that tournament so much that summer and the Holland game was one of those moments as we talked about in great depth on our Euro 96 pods go back in the archives and check those out that just everything just went right that day didn't it 4-1 against one of the best Holland teams you would have seen all right they were in arguing amongst the squad but they were still an absolutely fantastic football team and England just were amazing that night so I think I would pick that game um, with also this is a random one but the Bulgaria Germany game at World Cup 94 just for the shock value because Germany was such Huge favourites at that point and had such a great team and Klinsman was playing about his skin and Bulgaria, although they had Haristo Storichkov, they weren't expected to go as far as they did and that was a game that always stands out to me as well. England-Argentina at 98 is also another fantastic game of football. Uh, Goals-wise, the QPR one is ridiculously easy, although every fibre in me wants to say Roy Wigley against Leeds, he cannot cannot say uh, the, the Trevor Sinclair against goal against Barnsley in 1997 which by coincidence I'm actually wearing a t-shirt by Art of Football that has that image on it that wasn't by design I just realized I was wearing that I just got that out of the cupboard this morning so I'm actually wearing a t-shirt from Art of Football great website that does some great t-shirts that's showing Trev doing his full bicycle kit pose one of the uh, yeah best goals of the decade and then non-QPR Dennis Burkamp Argentina um, just ridiculous from every single second of that goal from De Boer's ball that's literally from left back to the bright opposite corner of the pitch the first touch by Dennis Burkamp the second touch and then it's in the back of the net it's a pure genius goal it should be the best goal I recently saw you all must follow the feed 90s football he's a great guy millions of followers so I you know I respect to what he's done he's done very well on there they recently did a vote on the best goal of the 90s and Roberto Carlos won the, the free kick at Latomar which you know it's it's a great goal it, it defies technology in terms of um, gravity sorry in terms of how the ball and the trajectory of it but I mean it's just it's a free kick for me the Burkamp goal is just only certain players could score that. I know Roberto Carlos because only certain players score that free kick, but you could try a hundred of them. You may even get one near it with that Burkamp touch in the ball. You'd never score a goal like that. So you know, shout out to the Paul Gascoigne goal again against Scotland. That's another pure genius goal. And Michael Owens at the World Cup just for the pure sort of <laughs> just didn't care, did he? Just for arrogance of just going through that Argentina defence. That's a fantastic goal. Also love the Daly and Atkinson goal and um, one goal of the season in the first year of the Premier League um, where he kind of went rent round a few players then chipped the ball uh, over was it Wimbledon yeah with Hansager's head that's a great goal and that famous celebration with the umbrella so yeah that would be my CV and then kits very 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 quickly which would be QPR I would go 96 away kit which is a bit random but the navy one with the white hooped 
stripes, which were slightly thinner, so it would be pinstriped hoops around there. That was one. That's one of my favourite kits. Uh, although I love the 1991s, the Wegley kits as well. And then, do I even have to answer the other one? USA 94 best kit ever. Enough said. Uh, back to the Twitter feed then. Uh, Dan Barker, who is another guy, who does some great stuff online on his uh, blog about 90s football. He asked, how far do you reckon England would have gone if they'd qualified for USA 94? It's a tricky one, Dan. Um, I think England were very much in transition at that point um, in terms of the team that played at Italian 90 and then the team that went and done what they did at Euro 96. And World Cup USA 94 was such a bonkers tournament as well because teams did well that you didn't really expect them to do well in terms of, I've mentioned a bit, uh, Bulgaria, uh, Romania did very well as well. Um, so it would have been hard to predict. But you look at the Ireland team and, and how they had to cope with the heat as well. So England would have had to, to cope with that. So possibly the group stage, maybe the next round, but I don't think that team was ready for any further just because they were still trying to find the best blend. Taylor, as we all know, probably wasn't the right man for the job. Uh, he, he did what he could in a time that was very difficult. Made some odd decisions, we all know that. Probably treated unfairly with the turnip thing and all that, but I don't think England would have made too much of a, not a 1990 or 96. I think it would have been more of a, average showing and possibly on the disappointing side if we had made it to 1994. Phil Wanley asked me, favourite 90s haircut? Favourite 90s haircut? Hmm. The first one that springs to mind actually is Taribo West, who I saw at the Soccer Sixes the other night. I called it that again, Star Sixes the other night. Um, He used to have those braids, but they were literally just two bits of braids coming out the top of his head. So it looked like sort of branches coming out of his hair and they were dyed green and white obviously in the nigeria colors so that kind of rings a bell the ronaldo stupid half cut fringe thing that i remember that from the 90s obviously jason leeds pineapple head that was called on fancy football that's another famous haircut from the 90s i think bat stewart had great hair because he could just pull it off as well i mean i couldn't grow hair like that but bat stewart looked like a rock star didn't he it absolutely great great hair so maybe maybe that's my favorite just for the man who could pull off such a you know i mean it was a time and an era but even then i don't know if i would be bold enough to pull off that just the greasy hair look and still look as cool as gabrielle batistuta did every time he put on that amazing beautiful fiorentina purple kit that was sponsored by what seven up and nintendo through the 90s absolutely great player great kit so yeah let's go batistuta feel i'll go for that and then the last one I just wanted to add is from Chucky Egg Ten, who said, "Anything you miss from '90s football?" Whoa, um, it's difficult. It's such a different time now, isn't it? In 2017 that we're in, so it's hard. I mean, I miss a lot. I miss the general fun of '90s football. I think now football is taken more seriously because of there's so much money at stake although not that these guys didn't take it seriously in the 90s but there was all this it just felt more fun I always say that in the 90s to be around um, the players felt more touch touchable you know um, more in touch with the game I think I'm trying to say um, although there's you know social network would we could argue that we were closer than ever but I thought that more the every man you know you could relate to footballers more than they felt like your mates down the street Paul Gascoigne being a perfect example. Um, I, I would say the kits, but the, the kits this summer have been so close to the 90s. It's a vintage year for kit design. So although they're not quite as bonkers and as baggy, I do miss the kits. But yeah, the fun element, just the 90s seemed like a fun decade. And it's it changed so much from 1990 to 1999 that by the end of it, it was a very different sport. What with Sky, the money, the Premier League, the Bosman ruling, it changed completely. 
I still hop back to, you know, 92, 93 when the Premier League began. That was kind of a season I remember the most because I was excited about the Premier League. But I think as me and the guys discussed in the pod during that show, you still had the mix of the early 90s and the old first division uh, with this new sort of whole new ball game as Sky Sports called it. And it was such a contrast, such a juxtaposition of, of the two sort of eras combining. And I think I missed just it being a little bit more cheesy, a little bit more naff. I love a bit of that. Um, and everything that goes with it, you know, you, there's not many magazines around anymore. There isn't many car collections. There isn't as many, like, the figure, the Corinthian figures and, and things like that. Everything's just a bit more slimlined and cool and sleek. It, in the 90s, it was a little bit more fun, a little bit more naff and a little more cheap. But in, a, in, the, in the greatest possible way you could imagine, I think that's the best way to describe it. So thank you very much for those. There were a couple of others, but I didn't want to make this too long and you had to listen to my voice drone on a bit much. But and just before we go, though, I just wanted to say once again, a, a massive, massive thank you to everyone who has listened who to AK90s, followed us on Twitter, or on Facebook, uh, dropped a comment or a like or subscribed to us. On, on iTunes or put a comment or a review on there it means the world to us we want to keep going into next season so please do keep them coming keep the follows coming you can follow us at AK90s on Twitter and on Facebook and drop us a review on iTunes because that helps as well thank you very much to West 12 Media David Fraser Richard Fraser you guys have been brilliant in helping us get this podcast out every time it's well I'd say every week or every month every time we put it out um, you regularly are just bona fide stars so thank you very much for that and, and for keeping us going you know you, you didn't have to do it last season there were some discussions of what we we're going to do we're still going and hopefully we're still going for another season as well and, and you're putting up with the schedule that we're on sometimes gets a bit busy and we don't put out as many shows as we want to but thank you very much to everyone at worst to old media everyone who's come on the show i mean i don't want to single out certain people but we have certain regulars that have been on the show joel or i've ever mentioned matthew christ recently uh, who's been on richard buxton who also gives us some stuff matt davis who's been on recently great stuff from the forest but there's many people paddy o'sullivan rob gallagher uh, there's there's so many people that are you know that have been on quite a few times that uh, i'm probably forgetting right now um but thank you very much to everyone who's been a guest on the show uh thank you to um everyone on the foot all the footballers that have been we've had on have been absolutely amazing every time whether you you were well known or it took a couple of seconds for everyone to to quite remember who you are but thank you very much um for coming on to and helping us in this 1990s nostalgia ride uh, here's to the next 50 episodes i'd love to my plan is to do a live one at some point so maybe for the 100th episode keep that in mind there's still loads more to come from alive and kicking we've got loads more shows the countdown to finish i want to do some player ones plus loads loads more if there's ever a theme you want us to talk about get on twitter and let us know we'll be back next time with 1996-97 i'm going to say it one more time thank you so much to everyone who has helped us get to 50th episodes I'm Ash Rose, this is Alive and Kicking, and until next time, keep it 90s. <laughs>